Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. I'm Tracy Jones. And I'm Heather Noble. And in a week when Primark staff are mourning the death of their founder, Arthur Ryan, um, he founded the shop in 1969 in Dublin. Uh, Instagram is stepping up efforts to tackle online bullying using artificial intelligence to recognise abusive and inappropriate um, texts. And Scotland uh, has announced the highest rate of new business growth in the UK for the month of June. We decided to talk about something that I have a total mental block with. Um, We're looking at lean and agile ways of working. I think, Tracy. I think you chose this subject, didn't you? <laughs> You're blaming me. Well, I, I like um, processes and I like manufacturing. I like understanding how to make things work better. In a way, maybe I should have been an engineer. Maybe I was in a former life. I don't know. But Lean, stripped down to its basics, is about maximising customer value and at the same time minimising waste. However, there is a whole guru um, sort of world to be funded with this. So the various um, disciplines that have sprung off from Lean, the different trainings that you can do, the multitude of books and resources about Lean would make it appear far more complicated than it perhaps is. Um, But ultimately, it's a very simple maximise customer value, minimise waste. And you're looking at me with like such a... (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I don't. Yes, I just. I don't know. We, we've talked about the. We've talked about this off air quite a bit, and I don't know. There's just something about it that I don't know if it's the terminology. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. And then when we get onto agile, you know, is agile the same as lean? Are they the same thing? And then as soon as you start talking about that, then they start talking about Scrum, and I'm like, okay, what's all this about? Then we got Kanban and we got Kaizen and. I just find it, I I want somebody just to make it idiot-proof for me, really. Okay, well, it is simple enough from the point of view that if you try not to get bogged down in in all the where's and why-fors of it, and um, it it essentially came from the way that Toyota have developed as a company, and and that, you know, it's over decades that they've produced this way of working, and lots of different ways of thinking have come from that. So you've got lean thinking, which was a t- term that was coined to, uh, coined to capture the essence of what Toyota have done. There's lean services, which is the application of doing this not for manufacturing, but onto the service sector, which might apply more to mm. the sort of work that you do. But I think one of the big issues is these services about lean and the training and the consultants it's it's often aimed at a big company how you can improve a big company because it's those incremental changes that that make big savings or big efficiency yeah big efficiencies i suppose but i i think you can you can put that onto a small medium-sized company and get benefits as well and i think that that's an area which i'm quite keen on exploring because if you implement lean philosophy in an SME, well, the benefits are, are going to be perfect for you because as an SME, you don't have massive resources to waste. No. So you want to eliminate waste. You're probably going to be more able to change because you're not this great big colossal organisation for which change is a very difficult thing. So I think there's, there's um, 
a, a paper that I read from uh, a doctoral dissertation. I didn't read the whole thing. I, I must admit, I did read a, a precy of it. A lady called Anna Rymazuska. I apologise if that's not pronounced correctly. She wrote this in 2016. And she talks about the idea that lean is, is connected to the big companies, the Toyotas uh, of this world, and saying that actually, if you look at it from a different way, the potential for SMEs to become lean is, is really massive because they're able to change, because they've got limited resources. They need to drive down their costs. That's the way that they exist. And they probably are quite lean. Or, or almost got, automatically. Yeah, the ability to think in a lean way. But she takes it a bit further and says, actually, lean thinking and lean efforts actually help with environmental sustainability, which is becoming a big thing now, quite rightly so. It, re it requires companies to take a fresh approach to all sorts of waste, so thinking lean can have all these knock-on effects and it really isn't, you know, you don't just have to go and look at the Toyota case book and go, oh, I, I need to make my very small, my, my micro business like Toyota because you don't. It's about focusing on how can I maximise this value for my customer but without all the waste and faff around it. And you can do that from a service point of view as well. What am I doing which isn't adding value to what my customer needs from me? And, and if you break it down, there are, there are going to be a number of things in any service sector or small business that you could find. But it is about taking it in small chunks. Because it's also used quite a lot in terms of um, software development, isn't it? Lean and, 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 and agile, um, which, again, I kind of struggle with i don't know why i think it is lit. i was talking to my husband about it i said i don't know i've just got a mental block i don't know if it's the terminology i don't know i don't know what it is but so i started googling um lean for dummies and lean for idiots and can somebody lean in a nutshell and all of that sort of thing um, and i came across a, a website which i think is just quite a good website anyway um it's hackerchick.com it's really like the sound of that yeah one, I do. it's an american woman who works in tech um her name's abby fishner i think that's how you say her name um and she she basically has written a blog about lean versus agile versus lean yeah, yeah, what's the difference? Um, and and she's put it in fairly simple, straightforward English with bullet points. It's really easy for me to read. Um, but as a website as a whole, she talks about a lot of things to do with tech industry, um, which is just, you know, is, is just an unknown entity to me. So, um, so, yeah, I did take a little bit of heart from the fact that it is, it can be streamlined. It can be made more lean. <laughs> in its explanation and i was i was reading about some um negative thoughts about lean as well so not just yours which is like i don't want to know yeah, i, I, I apologize for lean. <laughs> and we can safely say that heather's not going to set herself up as a lean consultant anytime no, soon no. but there are a couple of big controversies around lean and the concept of lean and the first one was um it's the implementation of lean, which I think is the controversy. And it's been accused of being like a form of turbocharged tailorism. You know, so the productivity pressure, squeezing your employees harder, making them work harder and all of that sort of thing. When actually lean thinking states that it's seeking cost reductions, but not cutting staff costs. It's not pressuring your employees. It's not forcing people to work with lower conditions and reduced budgets. It's actually getting them to think about cost reductions, 
themselves as they're working think about better ways of working but applied wrongly say for example you delegate this work to some very highly paid external consultants to lean your business that that can be an application of it that can go quite badly wrong and just ends up um, demotivating and pressurizing your staff because you have I suppose the thinking is that you have the expertise and knowledge within the organization and they're the people who know best how to make savings or improve efficiencies that's the that's the concept behind Mm. lean thinking is you you empower your staff to make those changes and those suggestions rather than impose it on them yeah the other controversy that was reading about is is actually how closely you follow the Toyota way so you decide you're going to be lean and you try and become like Toyota. Now, rather conversely, Toyota has changed quite a bit since the 1970s. And from what I understand, no two sites of Toyota are exactly the same. They have the same principles, but they've all got different local practices and different ways of working. So if you try and say, right, this is the way that Toyota worked in the 1970s and we're going to work exactly like that. Even Toyota don't do that. So again, it's about the application of the idea of lean thinking. You take it right back to grassroots, which is about changing it, allowing the, the company to change and giving it the authority to make these little changes to reduce waste and to maximise value rather than imposing this is the way that it should be done. So that's lean. Well, I feel I feel so much better about it all now. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So now we're going to be looking at other things that are in the news this week. And the first thing that caught my eye this morning was a report to say that olives are the UK's most hated food. Who really? knew? Who knew? Really? Well, apparently HelloFresh knew. They've done a survey which say that olives now have knocked Brussels sprouts off the top slot for unpopularity. Gosh, I didn't even know that that... I mean, how have they worked that out? I love olives. And they seem to be everywhere. They didn't ask me. No. (laughs) I like olives and Brussels sprouts. I like a good Brussels sprout soup. If you want the rest, I'll let you have it. But uh, also gherkins and seafood, mushrooms, raisins and chicken on the bone, which (laughs) Heather said when we were off air, (laughs) sounds like a lovely meal. It's my perfect (laughs) meal, yeah. Just put a bit of cheese in and, yeah, what's not to love about all of that? Wow. No, I don't understand. I don't know their... um, their, um, statistical validity of all of that but I thought it was interesting so I thought I'd mention it yeah yeah and if you want the recipe for Brussels sprout soup just send me a message on our website the business.community back to the real news Um, ICO made a statement on cookies this week Um, they've laid out some guidance which is now available on their website uh, and you can just go to their website ico.org.uk and find the guidance on cookies there if you're interested and they've also, interestingly enough, and probably a really good thing, they've changed their own cookie control mechanism on their own website to make sure it's compliant. Ah. Very good thing. And then on the website, in the article that I read, they've um, laid out five myths and actually presented the facts. So myth one, we can rely on implied consent for the use of cookies. Fact, no, you can't. Okay, because GDPR standard of consent is much higher than under previous legislation. So you you can't just say, um, because you're continuing to use this, um, we're going to assume that you you are um, consenting to this. Um, That doesn't work anymore. You have to actually make a clear and positive action to consent. Right, okay, so... 
All right, I get that. Myth two, analytical cookies are strictly necessary and so we do not need consent. Actually, the truth is um, they're part of functionality, but they don't affect the user's use of the service. It just provides you with information on analytics. So um, it's not strictly necessary and hence you need consent for even for analytical cookies. Fact three, we can, sorry, myth three, we can use a cookie wall to restrict access to our site until users consent. And the ICO say using a blanket approach such as this is unlikely to represent valid consent. As, as I said before, using statements such as by continuing to use this website, you are agreeing to cookies is not considered valid consent under the higher standards of GDPR. Myth four, we can rely on legitimate interest to set cookies so we do not need consent. And it did say, no, you always require consent for non-essential cookies. And myth five, the ICO wants online services to stop using cookies and similar technologies, and apparently they don't. They say they support innovation, and but that can't be at the expense of people's rights. So if you're not sure, if you're unsure about this, go and have a look. The ICO website generally is written in good, plain English. I've never find an, found any of the guidance that comes from there to be at all techy or complicated. So if you're in, in charge of a website, you're responsible for a website, you need to read upon the use of cookies. Because, as we've seen in the news this week, ICO are not afraid to fine big and fine hard. Um, last year, British Airways had uh, a cyber attack and uh, I, I think I might have even mentioned it on the show as an example of how very quickly they dealt with the issue uh, compared to a lot of companies that could take up to 18 months to report uh, um, British Airways notified the ICO within 24 hours and appeared to on the surface have done everything right however they've been imposed with a £183.4 million fine, which represents 1.5% of British Airways' 2017 worldwide turnover. It's not the biggest fine they could have had. They could have had up to 4%. All the same, BA have said that they're going to appeal against the fine, um, but ICO say the company failed to protect from loss and damage. Um, and, and they say that the law is clear. They've been entrusted with personal data. They must look after it. I think that's a really difficult position. It, it, increasing, we've talked about the increase of cybercrime, replacing um, the, the crime from drugs sales mm. as, as being the, the money of choice for yes, organised crime. Yeah. And so there's more and more pressure going to be put on companies from cybercrime. And BA say, well, they dealt with it as quickly as they can. ICO say that's not good enough. You should have not um, should have prevented it from happening. Really tricky situation. And I'm, I'm really interested to see uh, the result of the appeal on that one. And, and certainly on that, I mean, Facebook were fined um, half a million uh, over the Cambridge Analytica. And that was before GDPR. Although if, if that had happened now, it would be one point two six billion pounds. <laughs> which is the 4% of their revenue. So um, but uh, so I read the same the, the same article and I was talking to my husband about it and I said, yeah, but what happens to the money? Where does the money go? Because if... Because um, Marriott hotels have, uh, have, um, have been fined about 110 or something, I think. Um, and I was thinking, well, OK, if there's been a data breach, then that suggests that that data belongs to individuals who may have been inconvenienced in some way by the fact that their data had been accessed um by by other people um so does the money go to them 
Oh, good point. I'm sure it doesn't. No, it goes to the Treasury. Um, but it then says that the ICO is exploring options, including ring-fencing part of the income to cover potential litigation costs to defend its decisions. So oh. those companies who, who are going to appeal, such so as... money goes being, to the law firms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas actually... Yeah, I, I can see I think a campaign for um, yeah. filtering that money down to the people whose data was uh, illegally accessed. Yes, yes. Anyway, so you that's... Start the campaign today. Uh, yes, I'll work on that today. One thing that I um, that I picked up on, uh, an article in The Telegraph, which I thought was quite interesting, um, was about languages. And uh, there's been this massive trend in recent years for Mandarin to be learnt. In school. Lots of people are learning Mandarin because it's, um, it's the, the most commonly spoken language on the planet. However, this article suggests that that is not necessarily the case. And if you want to add most value to your CV and your salary demands, then maybe German is the language that you should be looking at. Um, and obviously, we've got the whole B word going on where there are going to be things that, that affect that. But also, Swedish. Now, Sweden Sweden and Norway, they're emerging. We, we mention them a lot. Not just because I work for a Norwegian company. No, well, no, but I was talking... They, to they are in my, you know, so sort of in my vision all the time. But, but there's a it, lot going the, on. Yeah, and I think that they're one to watch. So average UK salaries of jobs with a secondary language requirement. If you have Swedish, um, the highest paying language skill salary is 54,890 um, compared to Mandarin, which is 37,000. Um, Spanish, 35. Portuguese, 31. Um, Do you know what? These are the things that the careers people should be telling you. Yeah. Go so and, if you can't decide which language to do... yeah. Go and, learn Swedish. <laughs> Go and learn Swedish. I don't know what it would be for Welsh. I'd be interested to know what um, Welsh speaking does. But uh, I just thought that was an interesting one that, uh, yeah, things, things are changing and Sweden is, is undoubtedly one to watch. The discovery section of the show this week, um, this is where Tracy and I have come across something that's caught our eye. And I've got a book this week that's not, a business book. It's not written by a business guru, but it is about a business. Now, my husband and I celebrated a wedding anniversary recently and I thought, oh, I'll buy this book for him because I think he'll love it. And little did I know that he bought the same book for me. So, so definitely, <laughs> this is. Been a fly on the it was. It was quite interesting. I handed my my gift to him, and he laughed. And I thought, well, that's not a very gracious way of receiving a gift. And then he went off and handed the same book to me. Anyway, um, it's called it's called Notes from a Public Typewriter, uh, written by a guy called um, Oliver Uberetti, uh, Uberti, sorry, and Michael Gustafson. And essentially, it's about a bookshop um, that they opened. Um, and in it, they put a typewriter for people to just type stuff if they want. Um, an old fashioned typewriter. An old fashioned typewriter. Yes. Uh, and and, and, you know, that in itself is is sort of the, the thread of the book, the types of things that people type. But the story that I think is even more interesting is that they opened the book in 2013 in um, a, a town called Ann Arbor in Michigan. And they... They opened this bookshop and people said, well, that ain't going to work. That's, that's not going to, you know, 
you're wasting your time. Um, not least um, a landlord who they they went to a shop and said, oh, we'd quite like to rent this shop. And he said, what are you going to do with it? And he said, well, I'm going to open a bookshop. And they said, no, uh, no, we, you can't lease it. Because Borders, the massive bookseller Borders, had a shop and they had closed. So if Borders can't make it, you, Mr. Small Bookshop Man, you aren't going to make it either. But the story that he tells throughout the book, alongside the story of this typewriter, I just think is... It just shows that if you've got a great idea and if you're passionate about it and if you welcome your customers and you immerse yourself in the community, you can sell anything on the high street, even in uh, an online world. And isn't this why we're seeing the likes of Ikea going to the, the high, high street? street. Well, yeah. not even back to. They're actually getting a foothold in that yep. high street. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... Um, so it's a great little book. It's very easy to read. Um, it's got some really nice stories about the things that people type, oh. like, you know, will you marry me? Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things. But yeah, it's, it's a cracking book. And I just thought that it, it was because of the story that I thought that um, it was it was worth a mention. What have you discovered this week? It's not just the book that's worth a mention. It was the fact that you and your husband bought yourself the same gift. So yeah, we've either been married too long or we're a perfect pairing. Great I'm not minds sure. think alike. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Or fools seldom differ. Totally, <laughs> totally. So I've I've discovered a book and I made a mistake by buying it in the wrong format. I think it's called Introducing Economics: A Graphic Guide. It's by David Orrell and illustrated by Borin Van Loon. And it, it's part of a bigger series, all by different authors. So a uh, graphic guide to capitalism, political philosophy, logic, psychology, game theory, quantum theory. There's a graphic guide to all of these things if you want it. Now, what I would say is, if you're interested in these, go to an actual bookshop and look at it to see if it's right for you. I got this on Kindle and I think it's really difficult to read because all of the elements of the graphics are unreadable on my phone. And even if I upgrade it and look on my laptop, so I've got the Kindle app on my laptop, the, the graphics just aren't, aren't good enough. You, I think you need a solid book to be able to see the detail in the graphics because they are they're like, you know, the old fashioned cartoons you'd get in, in the older newspapers with uh, speech bubbles and things like that. And you have to zoom in to see them. On its own, actually, it's a really good little pocket guide to um, economics. So it starts right back at the beginning with Pythagoras okay. and how it's grown. And there's literally one chapter for each point, and each point is about a page long. So okay. it, it's real bite-sized. You can go in and you can start at Pythagoras and work your way through. And it starts off by saying that economics is a study of how goods and services are produced, distributed and consumed by society. That's essentially the whole of the first chapter. And, and it goes through just each of these really clear and simple points. And I wonder if the graphics do support this or not, because I really can't tell from the Kindle version of this. So it's a, it's a real shame. I do love a good book on economics, as you know. I've already looked into others. There's a little history of economics. Um, the economics book by Niall Kistany. Actually, a little history of economics is also by Niall Kistany. Um, there's the Pelican Introductions, um, Economics, the User Guide. That's really good. Small, um, short introduction by Harjun Chang. 
one I haven't read, but just catches my eye, not least because it's got the word donut in the title. <laughs> uh, donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. That's by Kate Rolworth. And of course, my all-time favourite, Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, A Brief History of Capitalism by Yanis Varoufakis, which was written for his daughter when she was 12 and is a real simple but not simplistic explanation of economics but if you're interested in these graphical gui graphic guides to all of these subjects including introducing economics my big suggestion is that you go and see a hard copy get yourself to the local bookshop and and actually pick up a copy of the book because that book doesn't sound to me if it's a graphic guide i'd expect there to be more pictures, More pictures than, than words, or that you know, the one would support the other. Yeah, so, so we, we recently bought a, a book um, to do with media, and it literally the whole book it's like a comic, it's a graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. It's all illustrated by comic strip. That is sort of the thing I was expecting. It, it yeah, to describe it as a graphic novel is it's not quite not quite what it is, but the content, the writing. And the points that they get across is very good. It's just a little bit of a misunderstanding, if you if you ask mm -hmm. me. The other thing I found this week was a, a resource on the BBC website. It's called Reality Check. And what they do is, is they take news items where people have quoted some facts and figures. And there are quite a few at the moment with some um, high-profile um, people vying for leadership positions. We won't go into a lot more detail, but they fact-check what they say. It's really quite interesting. And um, the one that I picked up was about the prize money for the women's football. And it just goes through actually all the figures involved in women's football. And the winning US team in France received £3.2 million. Pounds. And um, the, the total prize money includes money that go to the other teams as well. So uh, roughly half a million pounds um, for the ones that enter into the group stages. And so in total, FIFA awarded £24 million to the competing teams in the women's tournament. The whole... The whole... The whole that was the whole prize money, yeah. £24 million. And in last year's Men's World Cup, the total prize money awarded was £315 million. Wow. That's so more than 10 yeah, times yeah, the yeah. amount okay. there. Um, and the, um, the, the prize money doesn't go to the players necessarily. Each um, country's... Um, association has to agree with the players as to how much goes to them but it, it's it's not a great deal and it's frequently argued that the difference in the money that goes to the women's compared to the men's football is because the men's football football generates more revenue and in this fact checker it says actually FIFA says that its commercial revenues from women's world cup cannot be separated out from other FIFA competitions as the rights are often sold as a package. Oh, okay. So that interesting. interesting little bit of yeah. uh, background. And also interesting to find out on there, they say that the average female women, uh, women footballer in Western Europe, their monthly salary is between 1,000 and 2,000 euros per month. Oh, I, well... So surprisingly low, isn't it? That yeah. is. Yeah, got, professional that, footballers, yeah. Is that minimum wage? <laughs> It's, yeah, it's Border, well, and they they get an allowance of fifty to hundred euros per day when they're playing for their national team. Um, very top players would earn more, as is always the case. But a couple of other interesting facts that the website threw up. So in Norway in 2017, men and women started to receive the same pay for representing their country, 
and Norway again leading the Mm -hmm. way. In 2018 in New Zealand, um, there was an arrangement where the men and women's team would receive the save payments and equal prize money when representing the national team. And obviously with the um, United States and a lot of publicity around that at the moment, you may well know that the women's team have actually taken legal action against their National Football Association over pay issues. And in Australia as well, the women, uh, the players union um, have called on FIFA to reward male and female players equally. So that all of that was the point was I found this resource on the BBC website. Called, called Reality Checker? Reality Checker. Ah. Yeah. Might just go and have a look, look at that just to see... What they're, what they're covering. This week's profile is of a lady who created an eponymous cosmetics company. Ooh, eponymous. I love that you. word, yeah. Ooh. Estee Lauder, she was born in 1906, or so it's thought. There was there was a few question marks over her, over her year of birth. Yes, she, a couple of years out, yeah. potentially. And she died in 2004. And she, with her husband, she created Estee Lauder. And she went on to become um, one of the most influential business geniuses of the 20th century, according to Time magazine. And uh, she quite a, quite an interesting lady. She started off. Um, her family ran a hardware store. Is that right, Heather? Hardware store. I'm trying to remember now. Ke- uh, ke- uh, chemist, wasn't it? Um, no, it was her uncle. Oh, her uncle. Chemist, I beg your yeah. pardon. Yes. So she wasn't interested in her family's business so much as her uncle's business. That's right. And he was a chemist. And so, like a, a lot of us, I think. Well, certainly me and both of my children like making potions and lotions did you ever do do that yeah i used to at my grands i used to get rose petals and soak them in water all grands had roses didn't they yeah and it made this foul brown stinky (laughs) horriblenessness um and then once i remember making trying to make face like face powder out of talcum powder and something else but we've all been there only very had uncles who were chemists Uh, we might have ended up like estee lauder yes (laughs) yeah and and she she took all of the stuff that she learned with him she was making creams she was making lotions and potions and and she went on to so develop these things at the kitchen sink almost Mm. but she had this dogged determination to get them into good places and she was she was taking these creams and selling them to her friends. But then she got approached by a beauty salon, I think, so she'd sort of been introduced to, and they asked if they could sell her products there. Um, 1953, her first perfume, Youth Dew. Yes, and I think it's, that is still available now. Um, yeah, I vaguely remember the bottle use... Anyway, I, I digress. But now Estee Lauder is a multinational company and when we were looking up Estee Lauder I was amazed at the number of different brands that are under the Estee Lauder umbrella so I'll just go through a few because I can't name them all here but Bobby Brown, Clinique, uh, La Mer, Lab Series, MAC, Cosmetics, Origins, Tom Ford, Beauty then on the fragrance side, we've got Aramis, DKNY, Donna Karen, Joe Malone, Michael Kors, Tommy Ford, Tommy Hilfiger. And then we've got Avida. And the list is massive. I, I just didn't know quite how far the business had extended. Are you familiar with Estee Lauder products, Heather? Well, only only as much as my my pocket will allow, my bank balance will allow. But yeah, I mean, I think I think we all are. It has this quite unique sort of turquoisey. Um, packaging. It's described as greenish blue. Greenish blue. Oh, and do you okay. know why that was developed? No, 
Estee Lauder decided that it complemented every bathroom colour scheme. Does it? I don't know. Well, a lot of bathroom colour schemes now are based on a white bathroom suite. So Chocolate brown, lemon, <laughs> avocado. But Who yeah, knows? that distinctive greenish-blue packaging was, was chosen by Estee Lauder herself to complement your bathroom. Right, OK. Well, that's... Well, it's it sticks, doesn't it? Because it's still it's still done that way. Apart from all those other brands, I guess. I think what was really interesting about her story is that um, she genuinely, rightly or wrongly, um, you know, in an emancipated world, uh, believed that women uh, that there were there were no uh, no such thing as as beautiful women or plain women. You know, we just make the best of what we've got at our disposal. Um, and she said. There are no homely women, only careless women. Oh, dear. Um, by convincing those careless women they could become beautiful with a little help from her products, she took on the giants of the cosmetics world and won. Um, and she she did make her, her pills and potions and she, she sold them. Um, she had an opportunity to sell them and sold out in a day. Uh, and so needed then to think about how she could generate enough, um, enough stock um, to go into a... Uh, department store and she went to a department store to try and get some space and they turned her down they said no no it's not it's not our sort of thing it'll never work um and on the the story goes that on the way out she accidentally in inverted commas dropped her samples on the floor <laughs> the shop floor and people wanted to know oh that smells nice what is that what is that? i'll have some of i'll that. have some of that if there were some available um and so she was granted um permission to stock to be stocked in that department store but before she agreed to which which um counter in the cosmetics department she would have she spent a week standing outside that store watching women go into the store and see which way they went left or right and she deemed that they most of them went right so she wanted a right hand pitch wow well she is uh, in an obituary i read on her she was greatly admired for her uh, marketing sense clearly demonstrated mm. there mm. her anticipation of trends in the cosmetics and skincare uh, risk-taking and uh, also she was the founder of modern naturalistic cosmetics and the originator of the idea of gift with purchase I mean, oh like you're free yeah, yeah okay. we take that for granted you go and buy an expensive bit of um, makeup or perfume or something now there's always little bit of yeah, something. Yeah, do you want a little sample feel, or a free flannel? You feel a bit or, special, but yeah. then you, you get it and you think, oh, I, I quite like that. Um, she was also the inventor of um, a men's skincare range and a hypoallergenic range for everyday use. So mm. she, she did a load, but I, I get a sense of her personality from some of the other comments that you, you read about her. Oh, the other thing to mention is she it was her idea to have the Estee Lauder woman uh, and you uh, might like remember, the face of yeah, like Elizabeth Hurley was one of the um, long line of faces of Estee Lauder, but it's her interaction with other people that, that make me smile. Um, so uh, she she's well known for having attended parties with the great and the good. Um, she hung around with Wallace Simpson and Nancy Reagan, but there's this quote from uh, Princess Great, Grace of Monaco. Um, she said apparently i don't know her very well but she keeps sending all these things um and then she became a friend ah so she okay well so she she kept sending the prin princess grace of monaco gifts and 
then they formed a friendship. And, and you get you, a measure of the sort of yes, woman. Yeah. yeah, quite tenacious. Um, a couple of things I noticed. She, she, her name was Josephine Esther Mensa when she was born. She married a guy called Joseph and apparently she married him twice. So she was married to him from 1930 to 1939 and then again from 1942 to 1982, which is something I could never imagine. Um, She's quoted as saying that's what, what a big mistake and he, he was a, a great husband. And that she, she should, should never, never have divorced, divorced him. him. Yeah. And... F- just one thing finally that I wanted to pick up on, which is very unusual for me. I went to look at the share prices of Estee Lauder. I know, I know. I was in Company's House a couple of weeks ago and now I'm on the Blooming Stock Exchange. But in in 2014, um, the the share price was $75.67. In 17, 2017, it was one hundred and nine seventy four, And uh, on the 21st of June, it was 181 so that's not a bad return on your money if you'd invested a few quid in Estee Lauder. Not at all. Never mind if you'd had them for longer than 2014. So not bad from having made lotions and potions on your kitchen yeah, table. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, where did we go wrong, eh? <laughs> so let's finish the show with some quotes, Heather. I've got one here. I love this one. Be strong, be confident, be the star of your own life. Oh, I do like that. Oh, I'd like that on a T-shirt. Um, I've got, um, I watched a, um, a video by Evan Carmichael and he he um, he quoted three things that she said. Uh, don't stop at the first no, which she didn't when she dropped those samples on the floor. Love what you do. Um, that was spending a week outside Saks Fifth Avenue watching to see where people were going to go and sell, sell, sell. She gave away products. She sampled products. She shoved products into people's hands as much as possible because she knew then her product was so good that they would want to buy it. And she said that if they don't buy it, it's not the product that's wrong, it's that you aren't selling it. Good stuff. I've got a bit of a a soft spot for her now. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's all we've got time for this week on The Business Community. Do make sure you tune in again next week. And if you want to catch up on any of our previous shows, go and take a look at our website where there's links to all of the podcasts. Uh, The website is thebusiness.community. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.